Last week it was called Stephen Living Like Jesus. Today it's Stephen Dying Like Jesus. We're going to look at Stephen's death. He was the first Christian martyr. And his death is recorded in some detail for us. There must be a reason the Holy Spirit is recorded here for us. Let's, let's pray. Lord, open up your word again today. I pray you help me to be able to teach clearly and simply that everyone here would know what you have for us in this passage. Lord, every one of us is going to die one day like Stephen did. I pray that you would help us to die well. Give us insights on how we can do that, Lord. May your spirit work through his word today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, what, what chapter was it? It's Acts chapter 7. And let's read verses 54 to 60. Starting in verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. It's interesting to me to compare the dying words of saints and sinners. Mm. And so what I did this morning is I compiled three sayings of saints when they were about to die and three sayings of sinners when they were about to die. Wow. <laughs> First of all, we have the saying of D.L. Moody. Has anyone heard that name? A great evangelist of the 1800s. When he was about to die, he was recorded as saying, is this dying? Why, this is bliss. There is no valley. I have been within the gates. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. I must go. The commentator Matthew Henry lived in the 1700s and wrote his great commentary in the Bible. He said this, You have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. This is mine. That a life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. And then we have the missionary David Brainerd. He was the missionary to the Indians. Uh, the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, the famous revival preacher and theologian. Anyway, David Brainerd said, I am almost in eternity. I long to be there. My work is done. I have done with my friends. All the world is nothing to me. Oh, to be in heaven, to praise and glorify God with his holy angels. Amen. That's what he was saying right before he died. Okay, now let's look at some of the sayings of the enemies of God. First one is Sir Thomas Scott. He was Chancellor of England. He lived from 1535 to 1594. He said this, Until this moment, I thought there was neither God nor hell. Now I know and feel that there are both. Wow. And I am doomed to perdition by oh the just God. judgment of the Almighty. Oh my goodness. Voltaire, 
French author and philosopher, lived from 1694 to 1778. Voltaire said, I am abandoned by God and man, I shall go to hell. Third one, Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish author and historian living from 1795 to 1881. He said, I am as good as without hope, a sad old man gazing into the final chasm. So one of these groups had the great hope spread before them, even joy as they were about to leave this world and enter the next, and the other is filled with hopelessness and despair as they consign themselves that they're entering into an eternity without God in hell. This morning I want you to look at Stephen and his final dying moments. That's what we're going to be looking at. Last week we looked at Stephen as a person who looked a lot like Jesus in his life, but he also looks a lot like Jesus in his death, and that's what we want to focus on. I've never given a message on this particular subject before. I've talked about Stephen's death, but what I want to help you focus on this morning is your death. Consider your own death. And will you die well, like Stephen died well, like Jesus died well? I want to try to, if the Holy Spirit will help me, prepare you for dying. Every single one of us is going to die, unless the Lord comes back before that. We're all going to die, 100, 100 people, 100%. How will we die, is the question. If you know Jesus Christ, you can die well, you can die with joy, you can die with hope. Apart from him, there is no hope. And so that's my goal today. My, my stepsister just passed away from cancer. She was only 65 years old. We have two people in our congregation that are in their 80s. So I'm not talking about something that may or may not happen. It's going to happen. And for some of us, it'll probably happen soon. So this isn't something that's irrelevant. You're going to face death one day. And in fact, even the young, young people here, right? We never know if you're going to live from one day to the next. You could be in a car accident today and be standing before the Lord. So we should be concerned not only how we live for Christ, but how we die for Christ. So let's remember the context of this chapter for those of you who haven't been working through the book of Acts together. I'll make it short and sweet. But in chapter 6, we have a situation where there were some Jewish, Greek-speaking widows that were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The church was taking care of these widows. They had no one to take care of them, and so they provided their food for them. But certain ones felt like they were being overlooked. I don't know if that was actually the case or not, but there was a situation. And so the apostles decided... Well, for a moment, they were tempted just to run and get involved and start serving widows, but then they decided, no, that's not what the Lord wants us to do, because if we do that, we're going to have to neglect the Word of God. And that would be the worst thing for the church. So we're going to instead ask the church to choose men from among them, seven of them, who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and have a good reputation, and we will lay our hands on them and appoint them to this job to make sure all of these widows are taken care of. So that's what they did, and one of the men's uh, name that was appointed was Stephen. His, his, his story is told in the second half of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. <laughs> Another man that was chosen, his name was Philip, and his, his story is told in chapter 8, so we'll get to that probably next Sunday. 
So Stephen was chosen, and Stephen went from serving tables to performing signs and wonders, and then he's debating the Jews in their synagogue, and he's stirring up a hornet's nest. They're getting really, really angry with him because he was, they couldn't cope with his wisdom. And so they ended up dragging him before the council, which is just another name for the Jewish Sanhedrin, 70-member council, the highest-ranking religious authorities within the Jewish religion at that time. They dragged Stephen before this council of people, and they said he's blaspheming against man and against God, uh, Moses and God. He's, he's saying that Jesus is going to destroy this temple, and he's saying that Jesus is going to change these customs that Moses has handed down. And so they, these are the charges laid against him, blasphemy. Of course, the, the uh, penalty for blasphemy is death by stoning. So Stephen, in chapter 7, stands before the council. His face is shining like an angel. The high priest says, are these things so? Are you guilty of blasphemy against the temple and the law, against God and Moses? What do you say to these charges? And so Stephen takes the whole of chapter 7 to, to tell them. And he doesn't do it the way you would think. He doesn't say, no, no, I'm not guilty. This is why. He gives them a history lesson. He starts with Abraham, and then he goes to Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph, and then Moses, and then Solomon, and he mentions David, and Joshua. He gives this history lesson of the Jewish people. But as he's going through this history lesson, he's lifting up the law of Moses. He calls it the living oracles of God. So that's not blasphemy. He, he's, he's, he's extolling God's law. He, he doesn't blaspheme the temple either, because he calls it the, the house of God that Solomon built for him. But at the same time, he's showing them that they have a history of rebelling against the deliverers that God has raised up for them. The first one is Joseph. They rebelled against Joseph. The next one is Moses. They rebelled against Moses. And then he finally gets to his main clincher in verses 51 to 53, and he says, you murdered the Messiah that God sent you, the ultimate deliverer, the Savior. In verse 51, he says, and, and you'll notice when we get to verse 45, he starts to speed up this history. He was taking a sweet time with it, and I, I think he saw in their faces that they're getting so mad that he, know, he doesn't have much longer to speak before they're going to stop him. And so he speeds this thing up to get to the end where he really wants to go. And he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. The righteous one is Jesus Christ. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You, you're blaming me and accusing me of blaspheming the law. Well, you received the law, but you don't keep it yourself. Who are you to condemn other people so that's, that's really where we pick up today in verse 54. I want you to see how much Stephen looks like his Lord in the way he dies. And there's five different things I'm, I'm going to bring to your attention. Five different comparisons and how Jesus looked, I mean, how Stephen looked like Jesus in his death. First of all, he was filled with the Spirit like Jesus. Verse 54 says, now when they heard this, that they didn't keep the law, and that they had murdered the Messiah. 
They were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit. And I'll just stop there. Stephen was filled with the Spirit. Now, take a look at what is going on in the council. How did the men on the council respond when Stephen turned the tables on them? They put him on the witness stand, but Stephen ends up putting them on the witness stand, and he becomes the prosecuting attorney, calling them out for their great sins. How did they feel? Well, verse 54 says they were cut to the quick. It's a really interesting expression. Your fingernail has a quick, doesn't it? If you, go, if you cut it too far back, it starts bleeding. That's the quick, the living part. The fingernail is not, I guess it's alive, but it doesn't act like it because it doesn't hurt when you cut it. But if you cut too far, it hurts. They were cut to the quick. They, they experienced a deep and painful wound from what Stephen had just said. It hurt. In fact, this word, uh, phrase, um, cut to the quick, literally means to be sawn in two. That, if you look at the Greek etymology of that word, that's what it comes from, to be sawn in two. So they were literally shredded to the core when they were hearing Stephen speak these words. I think deep down they knew it was true. They knew that they had persecuted the prophets. They knew they had crucified Jesus Christ. They knew that they didn't keep the law. And so in those moments when only they were thinking and they weren't in a, in a public square, when they were alone and their conscience was speaking to them, they knew he's right. He's absolutely right. This expression, cut to the quick, is used in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That's how it's expressed there. Pierced to the heart. And notice when that took place. It was right after uh, the apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, told them that they had crucified their Messiah. Every single time they're cut to the quick or pierced to the heart, it happens after someone says, you crucified the righteous one. We also have it in chapter 5, verse 33. There, Peter is in front of the Sanhedrin, and he's telling them, um, I have that scripture wrong. It's not 533. Oh, wait a minute. I'm just having to think. Sorry. Yes, chapter 5, verse 33. This is right after they were... Uh, Peter and John and the other apostles are before the council in another time in another place. They'd all been arrested. Gamaliel said, just let these guys, don't, don't be found fighting against God. Um, if what they're saying is of God, you can't be able to fight it anyway. So verse 33 says, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill him. It was right after Peter had said to them in verse 31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to direct repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And in verse 30, he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. So in all three instances, right after Peter or the other apostles charged the Sanhedrin with killing their own Messiah, they're pierced to the heart. They're cut to the quick. And they respond sort of like a wounded and quartered animal. Instead of responding calmly with wisdom, like a trial should be, where you examine the evidence coolly and collectively, and then you make a decision based on proof and evidence, that's not what's happening in this court. They are responding violently 
and impulsively to what's going on in this situation. They're filled with rage. It says in verse 54, they begin gnashing their teeth at him. Now what, what kind of person gnashes their teeth? I mean, what, what emotion is taking place when someone gnashes their teeth? Anger. Anger and rage and fury. They were so angry at, what, at Stephen for what he had said to them because he was calling them out and they didn't like that whatsoever. In fact, can you, can you think of any other place where people are going to gnash their teeth? In hell. It would be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and anger and, and rage. Rage at God because he consigned them there. Probably rage at themselves because they made such stupid decisions. They didn't repent when the gospel offer came to them. There's anger at the decisions that they had made because they can't undo them. They're, they're stuck for eternity in this place of torment. So there's gnashing of teeth going on and there's weeping going on. Now that's what we find going on with the council. Look at what's going on with Stephen. It says, but being full of the Holy Spirit. They're filled with rage. He's filled with the Spirit. Mm -hmm. His face is glowing like the face of an angel here. They appear out of control. Stephen appears gracious, calm, at peace, and in full control of his faculties. That's how I would describe him in this situation. He's not impulsively raging on them, yelling and screaming at them. He's responding in a very Christ-like way through this whole, this whole event. How could he do that? How could he respond in love to his enemies that were going to kill him? He was full of the Spirit. That's the answer. He died being full of the Holy Spirit. And that is key. If you want to die well, brothers and sisters, you need to die full of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, there are two different Greek words that are used when it talks about being full of the Holy Spirit. One word is used in Acts 4.8, Acts 4.31, and Acts 13.9. And it's, it's a word that means that God sovereignly filled someone with the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish something that he wanted done. This isn't the constant character of that person's life. In fact, the person, it, it seems to me, has really nothing to do with being filled with the Spirit. God does it all by himself. Because he wants, like, for example, Acts 4.8. Peter's arrested. He's standing before the council. All of a sudden, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins speaking boldly to them. God puts a message in his mouth. Okay, so that's one of the Greek words used. That's not the word used here. The word used here is the word that we have in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there, it's not talking about this occasional sovereign work of God granting the Holy Spirit to accomplish a particular purpose at a particular time. This word is talking about the character of a person's life who has learned to continually subjugate himself and submit himself to the Holy Spirit. So you'd be filled with the Holy Spirit in this way means that you've learned to allow the Holy Spirit to control you. You have given up control and you're letting the Holy Spirit control you. And so that just, that's why it says in chapter 6, verse 5, uh, choose men who are full of the Holy Spirit, same word, who as uh, the character of their life is that they have given up control 
and they've allowed the Holy Spirit to control them. This is supposed to be what the Christian life is all about. We, now, let me just throw this out. I hadn't planned to share this, but how, do you, how well do you think you're doing at really letting the Holy Spirit control your life? The way you speak. The things that come out of your mouth. The, the things you do. The, the way you use your, your time or your money or your energy or your gifts. The Holy Spirit wants your whole life. How well are we doing it? Being filled with the Spirit. Letting the Spirit really control it. Just like wine controls someone when you get drunk. It, it takes over, right? The Holy Spirit is supposed to take over your life. He's supposed to really direct your life in, in all ways. So the, the word that Luke uses here is the word for the character of a person who has learned to give the Holy Spirit control in a continual fashion. Now think about Jesus Christ in this instance. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He died full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, likewise, was a man with the power of the Spirit. Let's just go through some, some things that we read in Scripture about Jesus. He was conceived by the work of the Spirit. Matthew 1, verse 20. At his baptism, the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. Matthew 3, 16. Then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4, verse 1. At the end of that time, that 40 days, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Luke 4, 14. When he arrived, he declared, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Luke 4, 18. Later, he would say that he cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Matthew 12, 28. And in John 3, 34, we're told that God gave Jesus the Holy Spirit without measure. An infinite supply, or infinite power source within the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus lived out his entire life full of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and yielded to the Spirit. And in Jesus' death, he responded to the Spirit. Stephen acted a lot like Jesus in both of their deaths. Because when Jesus died, he wasn't lashing out violently or angrily at his accusers. He was like a lamb led before the slaughter. He was silent before the shearers. He could have called down legions of angels to wipe out the people that were uh, torturing him and doing violence to him, but he didn't. He was meek and mild and quiet. He walked in the Spirit. He was perfectly self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He only said and did the things that the Father directed him to do in the power of the Spirit. So Stephen looked a lot like Jesus in his death. When you come to die, I pray that you are full of the Spirit. Rather than lashing out at others. So this sometimes happens because when you come to die, you're filled with pain. You're suffering many times. And so you begin lashing out at people around you just because you're you're suffering, and this it's the only thing you can think of to do. May the Holy Spirit so fill us that we respond to God according to His will and have a great sense of the presence and glory of God like Stephen did. So there's the first way Stephen resembled Jesus. 
Second way, he was blessed like Jesus. Look at verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now it's interesting that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Because every other place in the New Testament that speaks about Jesus and the location in which he is, it says that he's seated at the right hand of God. This is the only place where he's standing at the right hand of God. Why would there be that difference here? Of course, we can't say with absolute certainty because the Bible doesn't. But my hunch is that this was a way that the Lord was showing to Stephen that he was getting up because he knew that he was about to enter into eternity so that he could welcome his faithful servant into his kingdom and into his presence. It was a way to support him, I think. It was a way to show him, God is for you. You're about to enter into the presence of Jesus Christ who stands at the right hand of God. So there's a blessing here. There's a blessing that God gives to Stephen in his dying hour. He gives him this vision. He's able to see into heaven. Who else is able to do that? I mean, that's a supernatural thing that God is doing for him. He sees Jesus standing up, and I think probably to welcome his faithful servant. Now think about Jesus Christ. Jesus also was blessed by God in his dying hour. Now it is true, right, that there was a period of time when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was that period of time, and that's because he was bearing the wrath of God reserved for his people. And the iniquity of his people was being laid on him, and the sky turned dark for three hours. But as that period of time came to an end, things began to change. He could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's no longer my God, my God. It's now Father. The, the distance that he expressed in the former one now becomes intimacy again. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says to the thief, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. So Jesus had this full assurance that he was going back to the Father. He was committing his spirit into the hands of the Father. He was going to paradise to be with his Father. There's no doubt, no ambiguity, no waffling back and forth. Well, maybe I'm going to be with the Father. Maybe I'm not. I'm not really sure. There was this sense of absolute certainty and assurance. And that's what I would like all of us to experience when we go to die. Assurance. In fact, you can even have assurance now. The Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And I think it's sad that there are some, uh, some aspects of Christianity, some quarters of Christianity that they, they teach that you can't have assurance. The best you can have is a hope that God may have mercy on you in your dying hour. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they, they don't teach that it's possible to have assurance of salvation. But John taught his, his people that they could know that they had eternal life. And Jesus knew it at the time of his death. Stephen knew it at the time of his death. And I think that you can have that assurance if you are walking in Christ and you're full of the Holy Spirit. You can experience that same assurance as well. So that's the second way that Jesus and Stephen are a lot alike. 
Stephen resembled Jesus and being blessed in his dying hour, being favored. Number three, he cried out like Jesus. Look at verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now focus on the council for a minute. Verse 57 says, they cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears. They rushed at him with one impulse. So they're not, they're not making a judicious, wise, settled decision as you would hope to see in any court of law, are they? They're going crazy. They're, they're acting like they're insane. And they're just rushing on him because they can't control their anger and fury at this man, Stephen, who would dare to say the things that he said to them. It's almost as if they're going stark raving mad at this point. But notice how, what, what happens with Stephen. As the council was stoning Stephen, he called on the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Well, that's just like what Jesus said. Yeah. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, there's this beautiful parallel between Stephen and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen expected the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit. Jesus expected the Father to receive his spirit. And I hope that is your experience as well, that when you come to your dying hour, you commit your soul, you commit your spirit into the hands of the Father. Mm. Mm. Number four, he forgave like Jesus. Verse 58 says, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now what's going on with the council? Verse 58 says, they began stoning him. They began stoning him. Verse 59 says, they went on stoning him. You know, death by stoning is not a, a quick and easy thing. It, it takes time. Um, in every person's case, it's going to take a different amount of time, but it's not going to take 30 seconds and it's over with. It's going to take minutes, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, maybe up to an hour. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine dying by people casting stones on you? Uh, it, there, there were some legal conditions that God had set up in the Old Testament. Because God, God is the one that decreed that for certain sins, they were to execute that person through stoning. But God said there had to be a minimum of two witnesses, and those witnesses had to throw the first stones. That comes from Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7. The second one was that they had to be stoned outside the camp, the camp of Israel. That's Leviticus 24, 14. Well, these people did drive Stephen out of the city limits. So I guess that was their, their way of trying to obey the second one here, of stoning outside the camp. But I don't think that they, they really uh, kept the condition of the first one, was there had to be a, a minimum of two witnesses, and those witnesses had to throw the first stones. 
There were witnesses, but the witnesses never proved his guilt. Stephen gave a defense, and to my mind, no one ever brought any proof that would overturn Stephen's own defense of himself. Why did Stephen's words so enrage them? I want you to ask yourself that question. Was it merely because Stephen accused them of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit? And was it simply because he accused them of murdering the Messiah that God had sent? I think that's part of it, but I don't think that's all of it. Because they don't start reacting so violently until right after Stephen tells them that he is seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, think back, I don't know, a few years prior to this, the very same council. Another man is brought before that very same council. He's also accused of blasphemy like Stephen is. The man is Jesus Christ. And Jesus, to their questioning of him, he's, they said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus responded, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Mark 14, 62. So Stephen is saying that what Jesus said was true. He is at the right hand of God. Jesus said he would be at the right hand of God. Stephen said he saw him standing at the right hand of God. So at this point, they either had to kill Stephen or admit that they were wrong for killing Jesus because Stephen's testimony lines up perfectly with the testimony of the other man that they executed and accused of blasphemy, the Lord Jesus himself. Now, what was it like to die from stoning? Um, the Mishnah is the Jewish codification of the law, and there is a paragraph in the Mishnah that talks about this. And this is what it says. The stoning place was two heights of a man. So if a man was six feet high, then the stoning place would be 12 feet high. One of the witnesses pushed him on his thighs that he should fall with the back to the surface. So he'd fall on his back. But if he fell face down, he had to be turned over. If he died from the effects of the first fall, nothing more was to be done, because he was dead. But if not, the second witness took a stone and thrust it against his heart. If he died, nothing more was to be done. But if not, all who were standing by had to throw stones on him. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but stoning still takes place sometimes, occasionally, mostly in Muslim countries. They, they still allow this particular form of the death penalty. And so this is what happens in these situations today. Typically, the convicted criminal is wrapped from head to foot in a white sheet, buried up to his waist, so he can't escape. And then the entire community throws rocks at him until he dies. The process usually takes 10 to 20 minutes before the person dies. It's actually stipulated that they are not to throw pebbles because that won't inflict enough damage. And they are not to throw huge rocks that would kill him in one or two blows because that would be too quick. In order to prolong his torture, they have to choose medium-sized stones so that it will take some time because they want this to be, uh, they, want, they want this to be a real, real torturous death. In the case of Stone, Stephen, Evidently, the blows and the stones knocked him off his feet because it says in verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen. Verse 60, falling on his knees, 
the impression I get is that as these rocks are hitting him from all over, they knock him off of his feet, and now he's on his, his, his knees. And from that kneeling position, he cries out, Lord Jesus, don't hold this sin against them. Which is an amazing thing for someone who's dying a torturous death to say to his executors. I mean, who else but a person filled with the Holy Spirit is going to be able to do that? There might be someone out there that could, instead of lashing out at his victors, might just be quiet and die. But who's going to pray that the Lord would forgive them? <laughs> and you know, the Lord did forgive one of those people there that day, at least one, because Stephen laid the, uh, um, all these robes were being laid at the feet of a man named Saul. He was forgiven of his sins and became a, a great apostle to the Gentiles. So Stephen is imitating his Lord. Jesus said the same thing, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. He's dying the same way his Lord died. When we come to die, can we come to die the same way, having forgiven all of our enemies, all of the people that have wounded us and hurt us? Of course, we should live that way, right? We shouldn't wait till we die to get to that point. But especially when you are entering eternity, it, it would be wonderful that we have this totally clean slate for everybody who's ever harmed us. Like Stephen, we, we ask the Lord just to forgive those people that have harmed us, Lord. Mm -hmm. And the last aspect of Stephen's life that we want to look at is he fell asleep like Jesus did. Verse 60 says, having said this, he fell asleep. Now, of course, it's not talking about literal sleep like he... He started snoring. <laughs> it's like, we all, we all understand. He died. But in the Bible, the universal way that the Bible describes a Christian who dies is that he falls, falls asleep. Instead of saying the Christian died, it says that he fell asleep. Or they fell asleep in Jesus. Now why would the Bible describe someone dying as falling asleep? Well, when you fall asleep, you're going to wake up. So the sleep is temporary, right? Now, what happens to the Christian spirit when he dies? The, yeah, the spirit goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the body doesn't go to be with the Lord. The body goes into the ground, or if it's cremated, it's turned into ashes, and it goes in all different directions. The, the body sleeps. The body is temporarily... It ceases to function temporarily until the morning of the resurrection Amen. when God Amen. takes that spirit that is redeemed and reunites it with a glorified body, a resurrected body, Amen. and now Amen. we will live forever as body and soul, Amen. and now we're able to live on this new earth, because the earth is a real place, so we need a real body to live in a real place, so he's going to redeem you and your totality, not just the spirit, but everything about you. Amen. So. When somebody dies, their body goes into the grave and it looks like it's sleeping. And in a sense it is because it's not always going to be in that condition. It's going to awake when the oh, Lord calls yeah. it out of the ground. Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord for that. Now, the doctrine of soul sleep, are you familiar with that doctrine? Some people believe in soul sleep, meaning that the, the soul, when you die, simply knows nothing. It's, it's, it goes to sleep and knows nothing until it's awakened on the day of uh, the resurrection of the dead. But I believe that that's false doctrine. I don't, I don't think it's biblical. 
There are a few groups that hold to that, not very many. The Seventh-day Adventists hold to that. The Jehovah's Witnesses hold to this doctrine. But Paul said in Philippians 1.23, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. He was speaking about his death. He wanted to be with Christ when he departed. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5.8. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, the souls of Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus to the disciples. Well, they weren't sleeping. Their souls were very much alive, <laughs> very much conscious and aware of what was going on. We also have in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, a description of the martyrs who died for Christ. And it says that their souls were under the altar. They're not sleeping. Those souls are very much conscious and alive and aware. And these souls are saying, how long, O Lord, will you refrain from avenging those who have uh, shed our blood on the earth. So too, when Stephen died, his soul went immediately to the presence of Christ and his body went into the grave awaiting the resurrection. Same thing for Jesus. He fell asleep. Well, his body did, but only for three days. And then that body was resurrected and will never die again. Like ours will one day. So, let me just ask you a few questions to think about what we've seen on our study today. When you come to die, will you die filled with the Holy Spirit? And there's something we can do to make this take place. We, there's a decision of your will. You can give over the reins of your life to the indwelling Holy Spirit and allow him to control your life. And if you learn to live that way, then when you come to die, it's going to be quite natural to allow the Holy Spirit just to fill you with the words and the thoughts and all of that as you're leaving one state and entering into another. Secondly, will you die with God's blessing on your life? Like Jesus did, like Stephen did. Stephen saw this vision of heaven. He saw the Lord standing at the right hand of God to welcome him into his kingdom. Will you have an experience of God's favor and blessing when you come to die? I'm convinced that if you live filled with the Holy Spirit, that God will give you whatever it is you need in that dying hour. He gave it to his martyrs. You read their stories in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I, I, I don't, I've never heard of one single story of a, a dying Christian martyr who didn't sense the support of God in some way as he went to his death. None of them are railing at their persecutors or yelling or yelling profanity at them or screaming at them. God gave them special grace, dying grace in that hour. And we can expect, I don't know how God will do it, but I can, we can expect him to support us and meet us in our hour of need as we leave this world and enter the next. Will you die committing your soul to him like Stephen did, like Jesus did? We ought to. Will you die having forgiven all your enemies? Well, just forgive them now. Don't live a life of unforgiveness. Just release those debts to people. When you die, your body's going to sleep until the resurrection morning. But on that day, your soul's going to be reunited to your resurrected body. And that's something that all of us as Christians can look forward to. We're not going to be half of a person in heaven. We are going to be a, a total person living on a real glorified earth, a new earth where, where righteousness dwells, where there's no sin, there's no sickness, there's no more death. 
sighing or, and tears are done away with and the Lord comforts his people and will serve him in that place and will worship him in that place in a real body that he resurrected like the Lord's own body that was resurrected from the dead. May it be so. So I just want to encourage you. Maybe you're not going to die today or tomorrow, but remember this message. Let it instruct you because you are going to die one day. Die full of the Spirit. Die committing your life to Christ. Die having forgiven your enemies. Die looking forward to the resurrection of your body. And you can die like Jesus did, just like Stephen died like Jesus did. So Lord, I, I want to ask for you to help us to store and treasure up this account of Stephen in our heart so that in our dying hour, Lord, we will experience your grace flooding our soul, supporting us, enabling us to get through the difficult time and enter into glory. I pray you would help us to treasure these things up in our heart for that final day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.